HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. This week on Meet and 3, meet four of our HRN Hall of Fame inductees. These prolific individuals are writers who have changed the way we talk about food. We'll take a look at the journeys that shaped their literary voices. I was heading off into the unknown to spend my junior year of college in Paris. We'll explore the culinary landscape they work within. You know, it was that whole self-made American idea that you, you can just kind of create a new world from scratch, including a new way of eating. And look at the transformative effect that their work has on what we eat and where it comes from. It gets down to management deciding that humane handling is important. You've got to have management that cares. And if management doesn't care, then you're going to have a bunch of bad stuff. You can learn more about HRN's 10th Anniversary Hall of Fame at heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's show, we have Ed Levine, the author of the new book, Serious Eater and the founder, overlord, maestro of Serious Eats. He talks about advocacy at a young age and tells a beautiful story of optimism through the lens of resilience. And from the archives, we have a live performance from one of our all-time favorites, Bad Girlfriend. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Sitting across from me today, Ed Levine. How are you? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm good. We're hearing the smooth sounds of Tiki Disco in the background. Yes, that is some some seriously smooth sounds. Uh, a throwback to an earlier time in Roberta's. Um, <laughs> Ed is the founder, guru, pioneer, true believer. Just the yeah. overlord sometimes. Overlord, yeah, yeah. I was waiting for you to throw in a cub in there. Of Serious Eats, whose new book, Serious Eater, has been out for a few weeks now. It's so nice to finally meet you. I know you've yeah. met my brother. Yeah, I, used to, I hung out with your brother a few times. Man. Yes. Before we get into the food, like most people, you were a music lover first. Yes, that's true. I actually spent 12 years in the music business, which are detailed in the book. You used to throw concerts at your college, which my brother also had the plum position of doing before when money was flush and colleges were the payday that all the bands used to hope to hit. What were some of the concerts that you would throw? Well, I mean, Grinnell was famous. I went to Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, and its uh, concerts program was famous. Um, and there were a bunch of music writers who went there, Gary Giddens, who became the jazz critic from The Village Voice, Peter Keepnews, who wrote about jazz for the Post, New York Post, um, and so uh, you and because everyone paid an activities fee, so the, all the concerts were free. You had free reign, which was awesome. So we had everyone from Muddy Waters to the Jefferson Airplane, to Sun Ra's Orchestra, to Count Basie, to Duke Ellington, to Bruce Springsteen. It was insane it's very easy to look at those lists now and, and go oh my that is incredible at the time were they living legends or were they on their way to be legends? no they were on their way up you know except for the some of the jazz musicians obviously ellington was ellington basie was basie uh, uh but um no springsteen springsteen was on, still on his way up the jefferson airplane was still on their way up we got Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five because they were a local band from Gary, Indiana, when Michael was 10 years old. So, you know, we were just, the Chicago Blues were also local bands, right? Buddy Guy, Junior Wells, Muddy Waters, you name it. I mean, I had a religious experience my freshman year. This is when Gary Giddens was bringing the music and we had B.B. King. Uh, when he had this amazing backup band and he was doing 300 one-nighters a year with his backup band, which was Sonny Freeman and the Unusuals, and they just they just blew the roof off the off, the, off Darby Gymnasium, man. It was amazing. Did the students know, or was it just Friday night? That's a really good question. I think the students did know because we were famous. And, you know, there was invariably students who complained like, those guys are elitist. You know, they just bring the music they want to bring. That's yes. right. That's correct. Right. That's correct. That's why we took the job. That's <laughs> why we took the job. It wasn't for the $100 a semester. No. <laughs> so it was because we got a chance to bring the music that we wanted to bring. We had John McLaughlin and the... John McLaughlin and the um, Mahavishnu Orchestra right at when the first album came out and his manager said, oh, we don't, he doesn't want to play Grinnell because it's in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, wait, like Grinnell College is very hip, progressive school. And Jerry Goodman, who was the violin player in that band, knew someone who went to Grinnell. It's like, no, it's okay. It's fine. Yeah, it's, it's fine. fine. 
I mean, that's when it really was word of mouth and someone had to vouch for you, but you could also get those bands to come because they'd say, oh, fee's fine. It's good. It works exactly. in the routing. Yeah. We, know, they'll put us up. They'll feed us. This was like 1972, and we, you know, we got John Prine for $2,000. You know, Amazing. I think the most we ever paid maybe was $5,000, you know. For who? If, maybe for the Jefferson Airplane, maybe for Springsteen. Worth uh, it. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, it was amazing. And that theme of bringing unsung heroes and unknown jazz musicians and putting them towards the masses is what eventually brought you to New York. For sure. I mean, I, I you know, I, I talk about in the book, um, I was born with the missionary gene. You know, my parents, my, were, um, I was a red diaper baby. My parents were both communists. They met at City College and... I said that, you know, when you, at the dinner table, I say in the book that you had to bring your A game, you know, like in terms of advocacy. You had to advocate for some position and be able to defend it. And so it was mostly politics at that table. But when I got to Grinnell and I fell in love with all forms of black music from R&B to jazz to soul to blues, I decided to come to New York and uh, you know, get involved in the jazz community, which I and which I sort of stayed in mostly for twelve years. What was the jazz scene when you got here? What were the spots? Who were the people? Who were the you know, the Vanguard was still here, was still open. Uh, there weren't a lot of clubs. Um, the music, you know, look, let's face it, the music has always been marginal from a economic point of view, from a business point of view. But the Vanguard, I mean, when I got to New York, 73 or 74, Sonny Rollins was playing the Vanguard. I got to go see Sonny Rollins three times in one week. Like, end of story. That's it. Right, right. that's Full it. Full period, new paragraph, new chapter. Right. You know, I worked for the Parks Department. I made $111 a week putting on free concerts in parks and museums. And through that, I met this amazing tenor saxophone player, still alive, Jimmy Heath that I write about in the book, 92 years old, gave me saxophone lessons when I didn't even know how to put together an instrument and was and became a really important figure in my life. So The cultural department, is that what summer stages now? Is it the same group? I don't know. It, yes, it's the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs. It's in that building right in front of the zoo mm-hmm. on 64th and 5th. And I think it's still there. Um, and I, so I don't know if summer stage goes through there. Uh, it used to be you got your tennis permits there too, but um, it was I, I loved it, and I, and I got to eventually produce concerts, uh, working for this company called New Audiences, and because we weren't the A concert promoter in town, we had to be creative. So we did Ray Charles and the Staples Singers. I mean, is there Come a on. better? A, a two-act bill than no. Ray Charles of the Stable Singers. And when I booked this club that was owned by two studio musicians, remember them, studio musicians? No such thing anymore. Um, Randy and Michael Brecker, they gave me carte blanche. It was called 7th Avenue South to book anyone I wanted. So I booked Dr. John. You know, he did a solo gig. He did a, 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 a gig with Hank Crawford and David Fathead Newman called Swamp Jam. It, it was the greatest thing. They're like, we don't care. We just love great music. 
in the book, you mentioned that you helped co-produce one of Dr. John's records, Solo, yeah. which we actually spent all weekend listening to while I was reading. It's a beautiful the, record. It's, a, it? it's, it's almost the, the, my favorite version of Dr. John. Yeah. Well, because most people know him, you know, fully shtick-ized. And that was the first time. And I, I just read his memoir, or maybe it was a combination of biography and memoir. And he talks about the record we did as... Which was it for the uh, audience? Which is called Dr. John Plays Mac Rebenack. Uh It's still available. Uh, Spotify, Amazon. It's, it's amazing. And he said that, that that record, which he made because he was between labels, and my friend Jack Hireman owned a small record label in, in Baltimore called Clean Cuts because, because he needed a gig. So, But it did succeed in showing everyone that Mac was so much more than than walking on gilded splinters and wearing makeup, you know? And he's an amazing musician. He's he's just a stellar piano player. You can really hear it in, the, in that record. Um, I want to go back to your parents who play a prominent role early in, in the book and the loss figures heavily on them. Their advocacy, their defending your positions, what were some of the early guidelines they gave to you at a young age with you and your brothers about how to defend yourself and how to come with a, a fully formed opinion and defense? <laughs> That's a really good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. You know, I just sort of picked it up because uh, I realized if you didn't bring your A game, you, you were just going to sit mute. You're just going to be totally, totally silent. So I, I, you know, I read, I was reading the New York Times from the time I was nine or ten, cover to cover. So that's what I was armed with more than anything else, you know. And I'd watch the evening news when, uh, but um, you know, it was just one of those trials by fire. It was just like you either brought it or you were shut down, and somebody would move on. Would your parents give you critiques in your arguments at a young age, or they would just douse you with facts? Right. And you'd have to go back, lick your wounds, and, and come back more yeah, research. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, my, my dad would say, I don't know. You know, my dad was such a doctrinaire communist that he defended uh, the Russians invading Budapest to put down the Hungarian revolt in 1956. So, of course, I was four years old, so I don't remember, but this, this is all family legend. But it's like, think about that, you know? And, and I don't think it was until he, he went and saw what Stalin had wrought, like in the 50s or 60s, that he, it's the only time he began to question his beliefs. It's like, hmm, that didn't work out for millions of people, did it? You know? Oh, I was supporting one of the great mass murderers in history. He was going on theory instead of practice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So this young teaching of advocacy and this love of unsung heroes really parlays you into what would become Serious Eats and becomes a number of the bylines that you wrote over the, the many years. How does food factor into this? I know it's a lifelong passion, but where did the pivot go from music to food? Well, it's interesting because so I was in the music business basically for 12 years. The club was sold. Both of the Brecker brothers needed a rest from club life. That's all I'll say. Nice. And uh, and Randy's still around. Michael 
passed away. Um, but so I was like, okay, what am I going to do? So I decided, okay, I'm going to try to become a normal person. So I went to business school and I was like, I'll get a regular job. And then it turned out that I was really terrible at having a regular job. So um, I ended up working at an ad agency, mercifully getting laid off from a big ad agency. I was working on hemorrhoid medicine. So th that was a mercy killing when I got laid off, right? It was just like, please lay me off. The only problem was I got laid off on the day that my wife came home and told me she was pregnant with our son. So in the book, I talk about like, I'm just going to pretend I, I, I don't want to rain on her parade at this moment. So for the next two days, I got dressed like I was going to work and I took my briefcase and I went to a Greek coffee shop. Did you just sit and stare at the wall? Did you read? Did you I cry? I read. I cried. <laughs> I laughed. You know, it's like... Talk to yourself. <laughs> I talked to myself. And so um, I then got a job working for these guys that did all of MTV's advertising, which was better than hemorrhoid medicine, but was still advertising. And my wife noticed how miserable I was. She used to say, and I say in the book, that she used to say that she could tell by the way I turned the key in the door how unhappy I was. So I, I loved Patricia Wells's book, The Food Lover's Guide to Paris. And what I loved about it is it had profiles of bread bakers and chocolate makers and pastry chefs. And I loved that. And there wasn't anything like that for New York. There was nobody writing about non-restaurant food. So I had this idea to do this book called, which became New York Eats, which was a guide to non-restaurant food in New York. And I did that while I still had this day job doing MTV's advertising. Um, I used to do it, I used to write it between six and eight in the morning before I'd go to work. And then on weekends, I would attack every neighborhood in New York, like with a shopping cart. And I would be like, I'd be armed with clippings. It's like, oh, I'm gonna try this bread bakery. I'm gonna try this uh, uh, cake shop. I'm gonna try this sausage maker. And, and that became uh, New York Eats. And what was really cool about it was I thought it was just gonna be something that I would do before I figured out what I wanted to do next. And then a friend of mine, um, Ed Schoenfeld, gave it to a friend of his who was a well-known chef and cookbook author, Roseanne Gold, who in turn gave it to Florence Fabricant, talk about uh, tinkers to ever's the chance, right? It's like, but that, and then she called me and she left a message. Remember answering machines? She's like, this is Florence Fabricant of the New York Times. Um, someone gave me your book. I, would you take me on a food tour for the Times? And this was in 1991. I was like, sure. Wait, is this one of my friends punking me? You know, or is this really Florence Fabricant? But it really was Florence Fabricant. So I took her around. And she wrote this big piece that she called me the Homer of Ruggler. And so all of a sudden, I was a food person. And then when I wrote the sequel, New York Eats More, that's when Ruth Reichel, I took Ruth Reichel around, and she called me the missionary of the delicious. So I was an accidental food person. You know, it was my other passion. And it was, I was doing the same thing, and I still am doing the same thing in food that I did in music, which is I'm telling people, um, what they should care about 
and why? We love Roseanne Gold here. Her oh, husband, Michael, has done a trend oh. show with us for eight years. They're so wonderful. That's great. We're going to take a quick musical break. Yeah. Play a song from our archives, and we'll be back with more here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. For the right things to say Let it go, let it spill into my mind I promise I will help you realize I'd run away with you, away with you Everything you wanna say to me, say to me I would take it anywhere for you, where for you been looking for a way I'd run away with you, away with you Everything you wanna say to me, say to me I would take it anywhere for you, where for you I've been looking for a way Cause you're scared of what I'd find But baby, if the sun is what you need Oh, I, I'll bring you the heat Perdiamoci Brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, 
cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late nights seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients, and above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com. I believe there's four heroes in this book. The website, you, uh, your wife, who we're going to talk about, and, and your brother, Mike. Yeah. And let's start with Mike, because I think that he is this great foil and accidental guardian, um, investor, uh Older brother. Older brother, reality face slapper, um, and probably seemed like one of the few people who could actually actually tell you what was up and you would have to go back to him. Yes. You do talk about the few bo- times in the books when you don't speak to him for a few days, but you always go back. What role did your brother play in, in both your upbringing and the early days of sure. Series So my folks passed away. Um, my, my dad died when I was 12. My mom died when I was 15. So my brother, Mike, was 11 years older. So I was 15, he was 26, which also meant I hardly knew him, right? Because like he'd left the house by the time I was, what, six or seven? And so um, my, my mother, in her will, left me to my brother. Uh, also her, her brother, but he really was not the greatest caregiver in the world. So it was like... Okay, you're going to go live with your brother, Mike. It's like, okay, which one's Mike? You know, I mean, it wasn't that bad, but I, you know, and he had just gotten married. So all of a sudden we were thrown together into um, what started as a makeshift family and turned into a real family. And he was moving out to L.A., to start teaching law at the University of Southern California. And so we took, uh, we drove from Chicago, University of Chicago, where he was living in Chicago with his new wife. We all drove to LA together. A lot of odd silences in the car. I mean, look, we just had, you know, multiple catastrophes happen to, you know, like, how do we, how do we break the ice, right? And so, Anyway, I lived with him from my senior year of high school, and we sort of worked it out, mostly because we share passions for food and music, and because he was, he had really mastered the art of articulating and defending a point of view, because he was the oldest. So, you know, he would lock horns with my dad at the dinner tables, be like, whoa, what's going on? And so... um, you know, he was trying to be a dad well before he wanted to be, right? And so it was hard, but we made it through that one year uh, in high school in Los Angeles um, because of food and music. And then when I went off to college, he continued, you know, I talk about in the book, you know, when I got busted, I made my one phone call to my brother. I was like, is Professor Levine in? Uh, he's teaching a torts class. Oh, when he gets out, would you have him call his brother in the Powasheet County Jail? You know, so it be like, that's that was the nature of our relationship. But he never, I mean, he would say, look, you're on your own. 
you know, I think people when they get out of college should support themselves. I had a little bit of money that my parents had left me after we paid for college. And that's what I came to New York. And he didn't, you know, he maybe he wanted to stop me, but he he didn't. And so I think he admired the intensity with which I attacked, you know, my work, which was just the way he attacked his work. And I brought the same passion to it. So I think we bonded over that intensity and that passion. That's not to say that, that we there were lots of difficult moments. And when he decided he would write the first check and be the first investor in Sirius Eats, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I have some money. I can really launch this thing. And I didn't really think it through all the way. It would be like, okay, but like, it's Mike. He is not going to mince words, you know? He's going to tell it like it is, whether I wanted to hear it or not. Did you feel that that feedback, because working with family, you do away with all certain niceties and it's the same arguments from when you were young kids. <laughs> it just picks it right back up. It's just a different topic. Do you feel that that level of honest feedback actually helped push you in a way that if you had, had taken money from people who had to be nice or dance around would have not pushed you? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because a lot of the other people I ended up raising money for from um, were, were wonderful, supportive, never... Never asked to see the numbers, right? But my brother, every month I had to show him the numbers. And I talk about this in the book. It, it, it was invariably like a visit to a slaughterhouse, you know, because I'd show him the numbers and I was almost allergic to the numbers. And he'd say, if you don't look at the numbers, how the hell are you, do you know what you're supposed to do? And so that's, that was sort of the, the dynamic through... The 11 years of trying to keep the dream alive, right? I mean, which, or it was nine years, actually. And at one point, he, he actually said to me, you know what? I don't believe in it anymore. To your point about being real, right? It was like, what do you mean you don't? I just don't believe it. Just sell it for whatever you can. And uh, I know I'm going to lose most of my money, but I don't care. And I just couldn't do it, man. I could not... So if I if I sold Serious Seats at that point, like in a fire sale, like it, I, I, it'd be like I was dying too, you know. Like I, I I was sending Serious Seats to to its death, and I was sending me to my death. You mentioned you got busted uh, in the book. You talk about shipping a friend shipped you pot. What was your name? Num de Plume from oh, Pot. Robert Scronson. Where did that come from? <laughs> Totally made it up. I'm sure in a, in a when I was very stoned, it actually came from. Uh, we did used to do Sonny Rollins concerts every year in New York. Sonny's still with us, not in uh, in great health. You know, get well, Sonny. Um, and so one time I asked Sonny, I said, have you uh, talked to Stanley, have you called Stanley Clark again about being your guest soloist? And he just, he just went nuts on me. He says, 
fuck Stanley Clark and fuck you. Because he talks a little bit like Pookie on the old Soupy Cell show. So it's like, then he calls my bosses and he says, I don't want to deal with that guy, Ed Levine, anymore. So they were like, you, we need you to deal with Sonny, right? We got a lot of stuff to do. So you're just going to have to change your voice and, um, and, and call yourself something else. So Bob Scronson was the name I'd come up for my gnome de pot. So it became my gnome de Sonny, too. The other hero in this book is obviously your, your wife, Vicky, uh, who you thank in the acknowledgments about allowing you to be so open about the ups and downs of, of the marriage. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship? And you, you do a very beautiful job about balancing it in, in the book, but what it is to almost be in business with your, your wife and yeah. to know the, the very razor-thin line of responsibility and regret yeah. uh, and, and how she was a good foil for you or how she just let you live your dreams. You know, um, I, I told my wife on our honeymoon that I would never deviate from my nonlinear career path. And I also told her, kiddingly, I'm not sure she knew I was kidding, that she was going to enjoy working at Procter & Gamble, because I certainly wasn't. So she became a literary agent. Um, uh, and But then when we started Serious Eats, she was incredibly supportive. But then when money was short, and I knew I, I, I didn't want to lay anybody off. And I knew if you furloughed people, they're going to start looking for work. So I, I started borrowing money uh, against our personal assets because one of the deep secrets about small business in the U.S. at least, I don't know about it, what it's like in the rest of the world, you can't borrow money unless you're willing to personally guarantee it, which means you put your assets up for sale. So I was literally betting the ranch, you know? And so the first time it was 50,000 or 100,000, she was like, okay. And then I kept doubling it and I doubled it again. And all of a sudden it was getting to be a really serious number. And it was horrible because every fiber of her beings told her not to do this. But she sort of, you know, she, she agreed to sign one last piece of paper in 2014. And she said, but this is it. Uh, and if things don't turn around, by the end of 2014, you need to start to begin to sell. And look, I, you know, my wife is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. You know, she's smart and beautiful and loyal and loving and all those things. But I, you know, you, you test that, you test all those qualities when you do shit like I did, you know? And so I, you know, it, it, it was just one of those things where you get buried so deep into what you're doing that you you don't see what it's doing to the other person. So it's you're not trying to. I wasn't trying to make my wife's life difficult, but you know, spouses like to feel taken care of, right? And and I mistakenly launched Serious Eats in the name of 
financial security, <laughs> which is laughable on about 15 levels, right? At least 15. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and she was incredibly supportive. You know, and there were so many ups and downs. And, you know, I really did feel like Sisyphus. I'd get the boulder and it'd be like, we're good. And then a, the boulder would go roll all the way down the hill. And the bottom line is, Serious Seats was the, still is, and will, I think will always be in perpetuity, the only single subject uh, blog uh, sold. Right, that Eater was sold, but they had curbed and they had uh, racked, and they had a whole bunch of other verticals. Serious Eats was just Serious Eats, and so when we sold it in 2015, it was a miracle of good timing and desperation. Mm. When I started reading the book, I just kept jotting down the word optimism. This is a story of optimism. But then I realized over time it was actually a story of resilience. Yeah. And one of the great moments in there was something that we had also participated in, um, but you stepped away from. But the precursor to it was when you threw your first food and music oh my festival. Oh, Yeah. And the story is well-traveled well in, in the book, and, and I encourage people to read it. What I wanted to ask you about was the depression that you faced after that sure. and also climbing out of that hole because one of the things about living on your dreams and hanging your hooks in those dreams is that everything is personal there's no such thing as an imper it's never just business nope. so when you hit that depression what were the steps to recognizing it and then what were the steps to crawling out of it sure so Recognizing it was pretty easy. I literally could not walk down the street or be in the office without crying. Uh, so, uh, and I, the, the first night I got back to New York, I went to see a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist and he, he was like, you're depressed. And uh, he recommended somebody that I mentioned in the book Larry Sandberg, and he was the one who got me out of the depression because he made me realize that often what happens when you're trying to live your dreams, especially in my case at least, your feet leave the ground and you sort of lose touch with reality. And he made me see that that's what had gone on uh, with the Great American Food and Music Festival. Because I could have tanked the business, right? And my brother warned me. He's like, I didn't, I didn't invest in Serious Seats to be a, uh, an event producer. I was like, I know, but we need another source of income, revenue, blah, 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 blah. And so it, it took a while. And, and it actually, we, then we ended up doing a couple of smaller events, including one I talk about in the book with Hot Doug from Chicago. Who I love. Uh, who's the greatest. And it was like a hundred people, and it sold out. And it was like it was like it was it was like U two from twenty years ago. You know, it was like it sold out in in a half hour. People were calling. Do you have some extra tickets to see Hot Dog? Um, and so uh, that's what really enabled me to finish my crawling from the wreckage. 
And uh, look, it's a horrible thing, depression. And I was one of the lucky ones, right? We, we both know people who struggle with it in an ongoing way, you know? And so for me, um, when, when the depression took over the resilience and the optimism, uh, I knew I needed help. You know, and there was no, you know, I would try to hide my tears in the office, you know, and, and, and so I would go outside or I would literally like put a book in front of my, you know, it was just like, dude, you think you're fooling anybody here? You know, it was because we were working in one big room on Grand Street. And so, you know, I really, um, I sympathize with anyone who deals with depression and and I felt it was important to put in the book because these the kinds of things we're talking about whether it's the resilience um, the depression those are not things you typically read in a business memoir and so I that I thought it was important uh, so that people know that this is really you know what 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 Jeff Bezos has done at, at, at Amazon is not the typical business arc. You know, what, what uh, Mark Zuckerberg has done, that isn't, that's what you read about in the business section of the paper and you hear about, but it's not what 99.99% of, 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 of launching, you know, small business is all about. So, you know, it's just, it's just, um, I just felt it was important to mention it. Well, Ed, I want to thank you for coming on to Snacky Tunes. This is I have, awesome, man. I have one final question, which All I, right. I know everyone asks you some version of this, so I'm going to try my best All right. to answer it. What is the one recommendation that you wish people asked for? That I wished people asked for? What is some jewel of knowledge that you have tucked away in there that no one asks about? A cuisine, <laughs> a bite, something that you wish someone one day would ask you to share? You know, somebody did ask me, like, where my favorite burger was. And what's funny is I was early for you. So, and people do ask you, so maybe this, this isn't the right answer. But I had, I had time to have a burger here. That burger is clearly made with dry-aged meat. It's two perfect patties, smashed, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. But that doesn't really answer your question, man. So it's like, what do I wish people ask for? I think I wish that more people would ask me where to get the best babka. Ooh. And where do you get the best babka? Well, there are... Bread's Bakery makes an amazing babka. It's phenomenal. It's not really a babka because he makes it with laminated dough. So it's a little bit of a cheat, you know. It is, however, so amazing that I'm willing to let him cheat. Okay. Um, where can people uh, get the book? Where can they go to your website? You where know, can they follow you? Yeah, so Serious Cedar is available actually on Amazon at Wherever wherever you buy your books, uh, I got to record the audio book myself, which was really fun. And Bill Oakley read the forward is by Kenji Lopez Alt, and Kenji was in Colombia. So Bill Oakley, who's this great writer for The Simpsons and was the showrunner for Portlandia, 
and is a huge fan of Serious Eats, I reached out to him and he read Kenji's forward. So you could get it in audiobook form, as an ebook, wherever. And, you know, everyone at Penguin has been awesome, right? The book is definitely out there. Amazing. Well, thank you, Ed. Thank uh, you, man. We're going to play another song from our archives, and then we will be sharing Bad Girlfriend's performance from a previous episode of Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. 
Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Well, welcome to the studio, Bad Girlfriends. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Um, one of the few bands that actually agrees to eat pizza beforehand, but I feel like you look like you're <laughs> definitely up for it. Um, I mean, it's a cold winter day. I mean, I would, I'm trying to eat and drink coffee like all the time in this winter. Uh, th- thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Do you want to go around the room and just announce, say who you are? I'm Savannah King. I'm the bass player. Lila Bender, drummer. <laughs> Christian Owens, guitar player. Hi, I'm Brianna, and I play guitar, too. Uh, a lot of bands claim that they're based in friendship, but it actually seems like you four are really tight. Uh, is that true? All friends? And how did you all meet? Uh, <laughs> well, we, kind of, we decided to start the band because um, we were friends, and we wanted friends to be in the band so um and it really had no basis on playability or you know anything like that (laughs) so what you're trying to say is you didn't have to know how to play an instrument to join the band exactly no not at all all. i barely knew how to play guitar christian and i had played in and before together in bands but i just played tambourine and i played bass in that band i had never played guitar in a band before so it was kind of like a new world for me a little bit and even as, as that which is like obviously the total idea of like a punk rock DIY starting like how do you learn as a band and just kind of acknowledge the fact that like this will get better but we're still <laughs> gonna go play shows and uh, be a band well um, the way that we made it work is we booked a show before we me and Brianna had been kind of um, playing around and yeah, farting around in my living room and, like, trying to learn how to use Pro Tools and just this and that. So um, we'd come up with kind of, like, a small, very, maybe two, one or two, two or three songs a little bit. Um, but we just booked a show before we really had any songs and definitely didn't have a band. How was the show? It was good. Before <laughs> Savannah had never played anything. 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 Yeah. And I have, um, two hold on, hold, hold on. Like, hadn't played any songs or any instruments? Instruments. Instruments. Ever. And they pulled me in and, like, tricked me into joining the band two days before the first show. And I was like, all right, I, I don't even I'll think, try it out. I don't think tricked is the right word. I think bullied. 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 We bullied her into it. What were your scare tactics? Um... Well, <laughs> well, it was actually um, my best friend Paula Merritt. She used some reverse psychology on me and was like, "You're so shy. You'd never do this, but we really need your help." And I was like, "Well, but I mean, I, I, but okay, fine, I'll do it." <laughs> yeah, she was our first drummer, um, but she uh, bullied, bullied you into it. She bullied me, hundred percent. How did you get rid of her, or where'd she go? <laughs> she moved to California. She's like a mom now. Lives in LA. Married. Mm-hmm. And then we found Lila. Mm-hmm. And what? How do they coerce you into this band? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Literally Lila. Literally, everyone just turned red. No one could <laughs> see because it's radio, but everyone just turned red. <laughs> no, it was I. Sh- I totally shanghaied the situation. Basically, this girl, this um, person that me and Lila both 
kind of new, but not really, was basically like, I want to start jamming. Well, Bad Girlfriend had been looking for a drummer when our original drummer left, and we had a really, really, really hard time finding someone because we really wanted it to be like a friend situation. So anyway, this girl was like, hey, I met this really amazing drummer, this girl named Lila. She's really pretty and really cool and has a great voice and a fabulous drummer, and she's playing with all these dudes. Um, and so literally like a red flag went up and I was like, Ooh, a good dr- drummer. That's a chick. You I know, mean, your first thing is like, wow, she can actually play an instrument. That sounds like, <laughs> right. the and, first, like yeah, that sounds like were, overqualified for the original. Well, a little bit, At yes. this point they were all really good. Like, they've been playing for all. So Ben is now like a kick ass bass player. I just want to put yeah. that out there. Okay. <laughs> well, but this girl was like, um, so, yeah, um, I, do you want to play guitar with us? I was thinking of, like, jamming somewhere, and I was like, oh, well, how's my practice space on Wednesday night? <laughs> she stole her. She stole yeah. her from this. She, like, the stole girl us. left the room, and she was like, hey, I'm in this band. Wait, is this wanna... where the name Bad Girlfriends come from? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's that, a different story. That, comes from a different story. <laughs> that was a joke. I know your origin story. That was an inside joke for all the Bad Girlfriend <laughs> friends listening. Um, why don't we get a song? Uh, going. Yeah. Can I chorus you? Play a song. Enough yapping. Enough yapping. <laughs> What's this one called? Which one are we doing first? Um, Over the seas. Is that what you want to do? Yeah. Let's do over. Yeah, let's do over the seas. Are you ready?
Great. You would never know that right. none of you knew how to. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a one man cheering section in here. It's like I have still not figured out after all these episodes how to like say like I really enjoyed that or appl- nothing sadder than like one person clapping. It's just a terrible. Ter- there it is. There it is. That's if there were more of me, that's what I could do. Anyway, that was awesome. Um, so you all are from like all over the country, deep south, California, Texas, New York girl. Uh, what does that mean for culinary adventures on the road? Ooh. Well, we all, all have pretty much completely different palates. That's for sure. That's not true. You and I like a little bit of spice. Well, yeah, yeah me and you are really okay. Into yeah, and spicy. except for Savannah is like, well, not <laughs> we having no and spice and no condiments. Yeah. No, no condiments. No like, condiments. No for Vanny. I'll what bring if, all the the sauces for me. I'll, I'll, I'm up for it. So, what do you normally eat when on the road, or do you cook for each other? Do we cook Sometimes. for each other? Oh uh, yeah, Lila Mexican is food. Amazing cook. Lila's really. Amazing she's on breakfast. She's on breakfast. <laughs> Brianna makes great tacos. Brianna's on the, Mexican on the Mexican food. food. I make the margaritas. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Hey, you you need a good drinks person. Yeah. That's just as important. Bass player. And you? Um, she makes good soup. Uh, yeah, I make really good soup. And um, what's a, what's your favorite soup she makes for you? She makes this amazing. It's like miso, spicy miso vegetables. Soup. Yeah, it's like veg, vegetable madness soup. It's so good. It's really awesome. good. It's really she just good. Just like dumps a ton of hot sauce and miso soup, and then and just, like, like every vegetable <laughs> that's available. At the grocery store. So or it's like garbage sink miso soup. It's basically spicy, hot. But it was healthy. And Lolly, what do you make for breakfast? Oh, um, sometimes portadas. <laughs> you know, get some potatoes. She's really good eggs. at scrambled eggs. Yeah. I like to cook too, but it's all kind of like, you know, on the fly. Do you make cook, it up as you go. Do you cook for the people you stay with when you're on the road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, we, did, we all made breakfast for um, our friends, uh, Justin and Darby, that let us record at their house upstate. That was like our thank you. Mm-hmm. I feel like we, did we cook? No, we went out for Mexican. Oh, yeah. We're all really big fans of going out to eat, though. Oh, I um, mean, you do live in New York. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all actually just trick questions. You should have just said, <laughs> we don't cook. We like to cook. We don't really cook that much. We do cook. Actually, I feel like for a band, we cook more than most people I know. Wait, right. Savannah, I have to ask, like, what do you like to eat? You can be weird about it, it's fine. <laughs> well, I'm a vegetarian, but I still eat fish because my brother was a sushi chef, so I could never I know that. I could never give that up because of him. Oh, oh okay. Where's your favorite vegetarian spot in uh, in Brooklyn? Um, well, I really like Mogador, and I go that to place Radishwa. is so good. Yeah. I'm so happy we got that. Here. I know. Dreams <laughs> do come true. I mean, so many people talked about it. I was like, it can't be that good. And it really is. It's actually better, I feel like, than yeah. the one in the city, don't you? Uh, I only had the city like one or two times, but okay. I mean, I didn't, yeah. yeah. I don't know how I was right. I don't know how it could be better than this one. If that's the it's correct one. Is yeah. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And you said radish? Radish is great on oh, Bedford. Yeah. All's well is really great. All's well, yeah. Well, and also Sweetwater is amazing, and they always will make me something special. Sweetwater, the like, the Lamberger on the English muffin joint? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which it's known for, not for vegetarian. Yeah. Well, that's but, the thing, is that oh they always God. make me something special. Oh. 
for that palette of yours. Yeah. Okay. With no condiments. No condiments. No hot sauce. We'll give you an English muffin. We have a lot of them. But no butter. No jam. Will you do caramelized onions now? Because I think there's caramelized onions on that jam. I'm okay with that. Okay. Those are just like sweet. There's not really like a strong taste one way or the other to those things. True. Yeah. Which is what makes them. Yeah. Uh, why don't we get another song? Okay. okay. What are you gonna play? Um, this is an Aldi. It's called Mexico. Yeah. It's cold outside, but we want you to pretend that you're on the beach somewhere with us. Are <laughs> you <laughs> right, ready? So good. Did they play a sound effect? They did. Yeah, I can't hear it. Then you have the headphones. So <laughs> um, that was great. Why is that? What what one is that off of? You said it's an oldie. That's off our first EP. 
Oh. I love that you have your EP that you can get just get for free in your Bandcamp page. Yeah. I really think that like that's kind of the way to go. I know it's like most musicians like I need to get paid, but like you're really gonna get paid on your shows, merch, mm-hmm. tours, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Was it a group decision just to kind of go that free music route, or? Yeah, well, I feel like also if you're new, there's like no reason for you to be like pay to listen to the shit that you've never heard before. I feel right. like it's good to like give people something to get to know you by. Yeah, but now we're working on our full-length album. Oh, really? Currently. Currently. That you will have to pay for. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Maybe we'll do a little teaser. Maybe like a 24-hour free stream. You never know. What's the uh, process of working on your new LP? Well, we well, actually have a guest today. Yeah, we're working with this guy in the room here in Thank you, sir. A.K.A. Rewards. Uh, which is how I found out about you, the four of you, was through Aaron. So Yeah, he has been with us every step of the way. And he's um, producing the record. And um, we also got our buddy Benjamin Curtis from School of Seven Bells involved. And he's producing it with Aaron here and there and it's just um, dream team dream team it's, it's been great does he get breakfast cooked for him not yet we're yeah we're oh, we yeah hey, we owe you a big dinner hey bad girlfriends am I right <laughs> am I right uh, so what when is this thing gonna be finished or is it like are we in the middle of it or the beginning we're in the second half yeah. but we still have a lot to do How we've done spring yeah, but hopefully we'll be done by February. By the, I mean, by the end of February. <laughs> right. Uh, so, do you have any shows coming about coming up in Brooklyn? We don't at the moment because we're just trying to spend all of our time. Because um, we're we're flying solo right now, we're just making it ourselves with our friends, and um, we don't have like a label or, you know, we're paying it for paying for it, you know, and working all on our own right now at this point. So. No shows, because we're just focusing on this record. Which is good. Yeah. That's a good approach. Um, all right. Well, thank you for joining us. I want to make sure we get one more song in here. What are the nuts and bolts? Where can people find you, get your free EPs, follow you? Oh. Well, you can listen to the uh, EP and download it on our Bandcamp page. <laughs> did you just go yeah. Radio did you just, did you just go NPR on us? No, you know what? <laughs> listen, I'm getting over a cold, so okay. I'm a little throatier. <laughs> It, it's also my sex one operator voice. I'm sure some of my fans uh, uh, from my work recognize me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you can go to our Bandcamp page, Bad Girlfriend Band Bandcamp. Download no, that just badgirlfriend.bandcamp. And then our website is badgirlfriendband.com. Anyway, someone else will take it away. Um, all right, well, thank you so much. Thank you to uh, Alex Dupac. And uh, to Aaron, a.k.a. Rewards, for bringing you girls in here. You can hear some of Rewards live on the Snacky Tunes Live Comp Volume 3, which you can get on the Heritage Radio Network SoundCloud page. Uh, thanks for listening. Shout out again to Darren. And we'll be back with next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. What are you going to take us out with? Uh, True Blue. This is a new one. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.